Good morning, Northern Hills. It's good to see everybody. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brian. I'm always so glad to have my friends in the room. I got to say hello to everybody online. I want to say what's up to Mike. Mike, I, I said I'd give you a shout out. It's good to have you joining with us and the whole fam. Now, I got to add a little disclaimer, everybody. I got to add a disclaimer for this message. Today's content is going to be more mature in nature, okay? So what I will say, I think this is perfectly appropriate for 10, 11, and up. There's nothing crass or lewd, but if you're like, oh, I don't know if I want my child to maybe hear something that I don't want to tell them myself, this is your last chance to drop them off at the kids' ministry or icon. And if you're married to somebody who has a middle school sense of humor, this is your chance to drop them off at the kids' ministry or the school ministry too. So this is your last chance. But that's the last disclaimer I'll say. The rest is up to you guys because today we're talking about sex, y'all. I thought I'd get more response in the second service. I thought there'd be some excitement there. I got a woo. I got a woo from one woman in the first service, and um, I thought I'd get more woos in the second service. Now, let me just say, I got. I, I just got to talk about this because when I started out in ministry, this entire topic felt so much more cut and dry. Like all the sermons were basically, "Hey, wait until you're married." And don't look at any bad websites on your dial-up internet. That was like as far as the whole topic went. And now, I feel like there's so much more complexity and layers and nuance. You have technology with instant access. You have online dating going on. You have things like the Me Too movement, different views of sexuality or culture, and all things abuse and scandals and all the stuff we see. And so I just want to acknowledge that I know I am stepping into a hornet's nest of sorts today, but I'm hoping we can really get some help because this is what I also know. This topic is a source of a lot of pain for people in our church. For many of us, this very topic is the source of some of the greatest regrets in your life. Some of us in here, some of the most painful experiences you've had have revolved around this topic. There's a lot of us, we have memories and things that we have done or happened to us that have really affected our entire lives. And really, if we're going to be real, for a lot of us, this is the source of some of the greatest struggles we even have on a daily basis. And so that's why in this Relationship Reset series that we've been in, I feel like we need to do a reset on everything related to sex. We just need to totally cleanse and get this thing back to the way where it's actually benefiting us. Because you guys know this, the minute that sex drive starts coming into play, it's like the battle has begun. And it's just a challenge. And you know what? They always tell you, they're like, oh, well, once you get married, it's going to be fine. To which all the married people know, is it fine, married people? No, no, it's real, all right? Sometimes it's worse and it's harder. And so whatever season of life you're in right now, I think this is going to be relevant to all of us because I know there's frustration, there's discouragement, there's exhaustion. And we're just going to ask, is there anything God has to tell us about this topic that can maybe even set some of us free to set us on a different trajectory and to maybe even get a sense of fulfillment and joy in this area? So I want to take a minute. We're going to touch on this topic of confronting culture. For just a minute. Now we're going to look at a passage in the Bible written by a guy named Paul 2,000 years ago to people living in a city called Corinth. Now this context is really important. You have to get this. Corinth at this time was one of the most progressive sexualized cultures in the ancient world. This is like Vegas or like red light district Amsterdam because the challenge is many of us, you think of ancient culture like, oh, everybody just wore bed sheets and everybody was like super conservative and they didn't do anything bad. And now we're all the ones who do the bad stuff. No, they were doing stuff in this culture 
that would be so taboo and inappropriate even today. And Corinth had such a reputation of being so sexualized that actually, if people were kind of living a loose life, they would say, oh, that person just lives like a Corinthian. I mean, they were like literally like a meme, okay? That's how intense Corinth was. And now Paul, he's going to speak directly to the topic of sex because he knows this is such a big part of their lifestyle here. So everything Paul is about to say is related to this very topic. So I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm starting in verse 12 right here. Paul says this, I have the right to do anything. You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, this is kind of interesting. Paul is getting into a back and forth with these, these people. He's doing a little bit of a Q&A, and he's getting into their frame of thinking when it comes to sex. That's why the quotes are there. He's saying, okay, your guy's attitude is, I can do whatever I want with my body. Nobody can tell me what to do, especially when it comes to my sex life. Everybody. This was written 2,000 years ago. What is the attitude of our culture today? Don't you dare tell me what to do with my body, right? I can do whatever I want with it. And when it comes to sex, as long as there's consent, you better stay off my back because we are liberating people from the oppressive sexual practices of the recent centuries. That's crazy. 2,000 years. We're like in the same exact moment. And now Paul, he's saying, okay. I'll take that argument. You can do whatever you want with your body. You can do anything you want. But just because you could doesn't mean you... Not everything is beneficial, Paul says. There's even behaviors and lifestyles, Paul goes as far as to say, that can master you. Now, nobody would want to admit this, but if we're really honest, some of us have desires in our lives that are driving us and actually, they have mastery over us. And Paul goes as far as to say, just because the culture approves it and applauds it doesn't mean it's beneficial or good for you. So Paul continues this line of reasoning. Back to the quotes. He's like, okay, you say, verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Now, I actually think this is pretty good reasoning right here. Paul's saying, okay, we're talking about appetites right now. You get hungry, you eat some food, right? You satisfy the desire. He's like, you want to get the business, you go satisfy the desire, right? Meet your needs. I mean, that's all this is. It's a sexual appetite. It kind of makes sense. If you want to do it, just do it. And he's like, hey, God's going to destroy them both anyways. The attitude for the Corinthians, this is just a view of the day, was that there was a massive separation between the physical and the spiritual. And so for them, the spiritual was way more important. But what you did with your body had no implications for your spiritual life. So for them, they're like, okay, we're all going to die one day anyways. Bodies are going back in the ground. I'm going to take advantage of the time I have. I'm going to sow some wild oats. I'm going to wild it out. I'm going to take advantage of this thing, all right? It's college for 50 years, everybody. This is what we're doing. And actually, speaking of college, I had a really interesting experience when I was in college. I had three roommates, and I just went to a big public state school. None of these guys were Christians. And we had a moment where we started having a lot of conversations about sex, as young men do, I guess. And at one point, we actually listened to some talks and things about the topic of sex and opened up a document and had a little bit of back and forth debate about just our perspectives on sex. I know it's a weird thing to do, but it happened. I have still their notes from this conversation. You want to hear what some of my college roommates said about sex? This is very fun. One of them said, I think you can easily separate the physical and emotional in a sexual relationship. Emotional might make sex better, but it's not necessary. 
Another one of my roommates, sex is about me and my feelings. I want to feel good. It's not primarily about the other person. Anybody want to date that guy? Just <laughs> Another one of my roommates, whether you're married or not, everyone has desires for sex and should be able to satisfy them. No one should have to suffer without sex because of their relationship status. Now, you know what's so interesting to me about what my roommates said in college? They and the Corinthians from the first century would be on the same page about so many things when it came to sex. Like, they would agree on a ton. They wouldn't have any real issues. There's actually an author who attempted to summarize kind of our current cultural moment when it comes to sex. I think he does a pretty good job here. He says this, sex is just play for grown-ups. What's the big deal? It's just an animal pleasure. No different from hunger or thirst. Just like what Paul said. If you do pursue marriage, that's fine. Be true to yourself. But you should at least live with your partner for a while to make sure you're a good fit. And if it doesn't work out, the important thing is to be happy. And of course, marriage sexual norms, and even gender itself are all simply social constructs. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Is that fair? I actually think there's some decent arguments in there. Like, I can see why this makes a good case to a lot of people today and even 2,000 years ago. We have to ask the question, though, how is this going for us? How is this really working? Is there a benefit? And actually, this is where things get a little interesting. There's a Harvard-trained lawyer named David French, and he wrote an article for The Atlantic called Consent Was Never Enough. Now, catch this. This is mainstream Ivy League progressive culture. The Atlantic, this is a secular, progressive, popular publication, and this is where this article ends up. And look what David French says. We're approaching a critical cultural moment, a deep questioning of contemporary sexual morality. That's arising not just from religious spaces. It ain't just the church people saying this now, but also from the heart of mainstream culture. So even our own broader culture is recognizing something isn't working here. Like this isn't what we thought it was going to be. There's another woman. Her name's Christine Emba. She's a Princeton lady writing for the Washington Post. And this is mainstream secular stuff. Consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. This is her article. Now look what Christine has to say. In our post-sexual revolution culture, there seems to be wide agreement among young adults that sex is good, and the more of it we have, the better. Oh, no amens right there? Nobody wanted to say? Oh, I thought that'd be a good spot to amen. No? Okay. That assumption includes the idea that we don't need to be tied to a relationship or marriage, that our proclivities are personal, and that they're not to be judged by others, not even by participants. In this landscape, there's only one rule— Get consent from your partner beforehand. So that's kind of where we're at. Fair, fair summary. Look what she says now, though. But the outcome is a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. While college scandals and the Me Too moment may have cemented a baseline rule for how to get into bed with someone without crossing legal lines, that hasn't made the experience of dating and finding a partner simple or satisfying. Instead, the experience is often sad, unsettling, even traumatic. I have the right to do anything. You do. You do. How's it going for you? Is it benefiting you? Is it really improving your life?
Give me a chance for one more quote here. This is John Mark Comer. He's an author. He says, the questions nobody seems to even be asking are, is this making us better people? More loving people? Or even happier people? Are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to our liberation? It's just assumed the liberation is starting to look more like enslavement. Now, I don't know what you think about some of that stuff. I find some of those arguments pretty interesting and compelling, actually. I think they're making a decent case for what we're seeing in our culture right now. Now, some of you might be hearing that, and you're thinking, okay, Brian, I'll give you the ground that there's some unhealthy sexual practices, but are we really willing to say enslavement? <laughs> are we willing to say we're mastered? That feels like it's going a little bit far. I'll tell you, there's probably better and worse ways to approach this thing, but here's what's interesting. Paul now flips the script on the Corinthians. He's like, okay, that's where you guys stand. Let me give you an alternative to consider here. Let's see if we can make a case for a different view of how maybe this might function for our lives. And so this is what Paul says. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So you have to see here, Paul is completely challenging the position that the Corinthians have. He's saying, you need to understand, your body and what you do with it is profoundly spiritual. That God is even wrapped up into everything you do with your body. And so it is not just a container for sexual pleasure that's just going to be tossed away. It's actually essential to your very existence on every level. So much so that Paul even attaches this to Jesus himself. He says, Jesus himself had a physical body that was raised from the dead. And so what that means is your body has so much value. If God cared enough to raise it from the dead and he's going to do that with yours too, that means what you do with your physical body has so much significance. It matters so much more than you could possibly imagine. God designed your body. He has eternal plans for it. So what you do with it really, really matters. So, if that's the case, Paul says your body is not meant for what he calls sexual immorality. If your body was designed in this way to function the way God designed, there's things you can do with it that are not only not beneficial, they're actually damaging to God's very intentions for your life. So Paul's going to continue his case. He goes on in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! I love this. I think Paul's getting a little snarky right here. He's like, don't you even know this? Like, are you not aware of these things? To which I feel like a lot of us are like, no, actually, I wasn't aware, Paul. Thank you for educating me on this matter. And he's like, you got to understand, the moment you become a Christian, he's saying Jesus himself unites with you. You are totally integrated with Jesus himself, and therefore he is present with you in all things. Even when you're doing the dandy, he's there. And so Paul's like, if that's the case, you wouldn't ever think of Jesus coming along with you to go after some prostitutes. He's like, that wouldn't even enter your mind. And this prostitution thing, this is very important in the context Paul's speaking to. Prostitution was a massive part of the Corinthian culture. It was just normal lifestyle for so many people. 
It's Paul saying, you got to understand, that's not how this thing should work. Verse 16, though. Let's say, let him finish out this argument. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So I know this is another loaded phrase right here. Paul is actually going all the way back to the earliest pages of the Bible and quoting Genesis itself, the creation narrative. And he's pulling out this story of where God talks about a husband and wife coming together and becoming one flesh, totally unified in identity, spiritually, emotionally, even physically. And now Paul is making a comparison here. He's not just comparing prostitution with marriage. He's comparing any unmarried sexual relationships with the marriage covenant. And this is what Paul is saying. When you are sexually intimate with somebody, you are enacting a covenant ceremony with your body. You are becoming one with that person, not just physically. There is a soul connection that is happening when you are with that person. One theologian even said it like this. Sex is like pouring concrete between the souls of two people. You cannot mingle your body without mingling your soul. There's another person who even said, sex binds two people, whether they want to be bound or not. So this alternative that Paul is giving is seen actually all throughout the Bible, if you pay attention to it. You go all the way back to even throughout the Old Testament, you'll see lines like this. In Genesis 4.1, it says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now you could easily pass over that and be like, okay, that's just a euphemism for sex, Brian. We get it. Adam knew her, but no. Actually, the writer is trying to capture the profound nature of this. This is not just physical knowing. He's saying there is a soul knowledge that happens during physical intimacy. And now actually research is even showing this. Maybe some of you guys have heard before. Now all these scientists are finding that the different chemicals released during sex actually brings on what they call the attachment system in your body. It brings that online. And they say this will cause you to actually bond to another person. And so on, on the good side, they say this can actually reinforce commitment. It can actually help a connection in a relationship. But what they found is now that the more sexual partners you have, the capacity of your body to attach and bond actually diminishes. Because your body is trying to adapt from the separation of multiple partners, it will actually desensitize you from being able to bond with another person. Now, my roommates, the Corinthians and our culture would say, you can easily separate the physical, the emotional, and spiritual. And yet God and science would say, you actually can't. <laughs> they all go together. I was a youth pastor back in the day, and I gave kind of a message on sex and all this to the teens. There's a 16-year-old girl who came up after the service. This is a girl who was super important to Nicole and I, really special. And she had just a vulnerable moment with me. And she said, Brian, I have been with so many guys, I feel nothing when I'm with them. Like I have become numb to the whole experience. Now this 16-year-old girl, she didn't even fully understand it scientifically or even spiritually, but what she was experiencing was her bonding ability was broken. 
Now, it's stories like that and the way churches usually approach this, which is why we get a really bad reputation when it comes to the sex thing, right? Because most of us, your experience with people talking about this in a church context is no, 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 ew, ew, ew. If you want it, you're nasty. If you do it, you're gross. So make sure you save it for your spouse on your wedding night. It's like, no wonder people think Christians are weird, all right? We're just, we're a bunch of people who have a standard we're not even living up to, and we sound like fuddy-duddy prudish people. It doesn't work. And so we need to even reset ourselves on this whole thing. We got to talk about God's good design with this. Let's hit the reset button for a second, everybody. From the earliest pages of the Bible, you see that God not only had this beautiful design for creation, he had a beautiful design for sex. That he even made the first man and woman to be these perfect complements to one another, spiritually, emotionally, even physically. It's not like God walked away after making Adam and Eve and came back and was like, what in the world? That is not what I meant for that to happen. All right, it clearly works. The plumbing goes together, okay? So you even look for it in the Bible. Maybe you've read this short little book of the Bible called Song of Songs. It's like this mini little romance novel between this young guy and girl who are anticipating and even enjoying sexual intimacy. This book of the Bible is so graphic, men wouldn't even be allowed to read it until they were 30 years old in the ancient world. I know what some of you are doing right now. You're like, what book was that called in the Bible, Brian? I need something to do before this message is over. Let me look that up real quick. Some of you guys have to read your Bibles more. This is way better than Fifty Shades of Grey, okay? There's some good stuff in there. But what's interesting about this is if you read through that entire book, it's just a short little book, it doesn't say anything negative about sex. It's all positive. It's all affirming. It's all celebrating. And you need to see that the biblical view of sex truly at its foundational level is that it is a wonderful gift designed by God to bond a husband and wife together and enjoy pleasure and fun and fulfillment and to come together as one. And so the Song of Songs, you'll see this refrain all throughout this book, like in chapter 8 verse 4, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This sex thing, it has nuclear power. It has the power to bring so much life and joy, and it has the power to do so much damage. And so the writer of this book is saying, you have to make sure that you only allow these desires to come to their full fruition at the right time with the right person. Only do with your body what you're willing to do with your soul. Okay, that's the biblical picture. So what do we do about that? What, what do we do about this good design that God has? How does this practically work out now in relationships? We got to talk about sex by design now. Nuts and bolts. Like, let's get into it now, Brian. 1 Corinthians 7.3, we're going back to Paul. I'm going to start in verse 3 of chapter 7. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, you have to catch this. Anytime the Bible is giving directives around sex, it is always speaking within a marriage context of a husband and wife. And that's because we said, because of the powerful nuclear dynamic of sex, it needs a container that can properly channel the energy. And the biblical perspective is that marriage actually provides that container for sex to actually be a fruitful thing in your life. 
and that is something that flies in the face of our culture today. All right, that is not something we agree on in the world today. Now, why is marriage such an important precondition for sex? Why is Paul and God so serious about this? We have to understand, foundationally, marriage is a covenant relationship. It's actually the only true human covenant relationship that exists. And what that means is it is a lifetime commitment to completely devote yourself to another person, regardless of the seasons, the challenges, and other things you may face in life. I mean, we've heard the vows before, for better or for worse, right? Sickness, health, richer, poor. When you step into a marriage covenant, this isn't just, oh, we're dating and we like each other. It's not, let's just be roommates and share the rent. It's not even, let's just be long-term partners. No, it's, I am in this thing. We are one. We are merging our very identities and purposes in life together. Now, what that means in an ideal scenario is that this covenant provides a rock-solid foundation for the relationship. That it gives you this bedrock to actually build a future on. And with that in place, because now you have your full trust in another person, you have full devotion to them, you've committed your life to them, you now can trust your body to them too. You can hand your entire self over to them. So when you really are intimate with your spouse, you are communicating with your own body. I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. That is what you're communicating through this. And that's why sex within a marriage context will actually strengthen and solidify the relationship more and more over time. Do you guys know who the most sexually satisfied people in the world are based on research? It is people in their 60s who have been married for decades. Now, don't picture that right now in your minds. I was hoping I'd hear some old people go, amen, pastor, it's true. I was hoping to hear that. You're like, well, why would that be the case? You think about it. Decades of commitment and self-sacrifice and serving one another, this covenant relationship, even the sexual dynamic, becomes so much more meaningful. There's so much history mixed in with it, and it builds this oneness bond that God was hoping to happen. So if, if that's what God meant for that, what does this mean for you if you're not married? I know we got a lot of single people in our church. Maybe you're dating somebody right now. Maybe you have a roommate. Maybe you have a long-term partner. Whatever your situation is, you just have to understand you are not in a covenant relationship with that person. I'm not saying you're not in a serious relationship. I'm not saying you don't love them. I'm just saying you're not in a covenant. And what Paul would say is you should never covenant your body with somebody that you haven't covenanted your life with. That is what Paul would say. Because if you do, you can't help but experience spiritual dissonance in your life. It's going to throw things off kilter for you because you've just given your body to this person. So your body is saying, oh, we're in a covenant. But your heart and your mind know that you're not. And actually, what's fascinating is there's studies that even show some of this dynamic. So one study found that couples that are sexually active or cohabitating but are not married have lower levels of trust in the relationship. And maybe that kind of makes sense. You've been totally vulnerable with this person on a physical level, which is still profoundly spiritual. And yet you think, okay, if they could do that while we're not covenanted together, what would stop them from leaving? What would stop them going to somebody else? 
And so the research finds that there's usually much more insecurity, jealousy, and even emotional distance in a non-married sexual relationship. Another interesting one. A study found couples that are sexually active or cohabitate before marriage are much more likely to divorce. Now that one kind of gets me. Because your first thought process is, well, shouldn't you test the car before you buy it, right? Drive it around a little bit. See if you can work together. See if it works, kind of, right? That's the test you want to do. And yet, again, this is secular research, everybody. These aren't Christians who have some sort of axe to grind. Here's what they found. These couples have established their lives together on what they call unstable sexual relationships. So what they've even found is that sex outside of a committed covenant is not the same thing. It's actually not a way to strengthen the foundation of a relationship but become more one. They talk about how usually the motives are different in the sexual relationship. Sometimes it's uncontrolled passion. It's driven by performance, your own personal pleasure, selfish dynamics, and ultimately it weakens and destabilizes the foundation of the relationship. Only give your body to someone you have already given your soul. Now, what does this mean? If you, maybe you're not a Christian here. You're with somebody. Maybe your roommates. You're, you're with a partner. I want you to know, if you're new to this whole Christian thing, you're still exploring it. Our hope for you is that you would have a real encounter with Jesus. That you would see he loves you and he cares for you. He wants to know you and he wants to walk with you in this life and he has much better purposes for you. I'm hoping that this would be some food for thought for you. That you'd be like, okay, Brian, you got me thinking a little bit. Maybe there is a better way to go about this. And maybe I need to explore this a little bit more. I'm hoping for that. Now, what if you're here and you are a Christian and maybe you're with somebody you're not married to? You're sleeping together. Your roommate's cohabitating. You just need to understand you are not loving or treating that person you're with the way they deserve to be loved or treated. And actually, you are doing real harm to that person, yourself, and the relationship. And if you really care about that person and you want to give this relationship a good future, you might need to start making some hard decisions. You might need to sit down and just have a very real conversation with them and say, listen, honey, I care about you. I want this relationship to work. We need to get on a better path if we want this thing to have a good future. And you need to stop sleeping together. If you're serious about your faith, you need to see that this is a very big thing in the Bible. If you're living together, you need to get on a path of moving towards a covenant and being unified as one flesh. And if deep down you genuinely don't believe that this relationship has a future, you owe it to the other person not to waste any more of their time. You need to end it. Stop dragging them along in a relationship that's going nowhere. It's not fair to them. And it's not fair to yourself. Now, what do we do about the married people, though? What do the married folk got to do here? Paul said a husband and a wife must fulfill their marital duty to one another. The Bible actually talks about having sexual obligations to your spouse. No, no amens there? I got a little, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just want to see where that would go. Now, this is usually though, where there's one person in the marriage relationship that's so like, amen, I like this church. Let's come back here, honey. Let's go apply some of this message today when we get home. Wrap this thing up, Brian. Now, 
I have to say, though, this particular verse that we're talking about has been used by so many churches and different Christian circles to actually force sex sometimes on spouses. That is not God-honoring in any way, and it makes people feel obligated to something that is actually destructive to the marriage relationship. So we got to understand the nuance to this, everybody, all right? Can't just say, go have sex. Woo, it's going to be great. Verse 5, Paul says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this is just mind-blowing what Paul's talking about. He's saying you need to understand when you enter into a covenant relationship, you are literally yielding your body to another person. You, you are one in this whole thing. And so the heart motive for a Christian should be, I want to serve my spouse, even sexually. I want to, we want to meet each other's needs. We want to be one in this. We want to build this covenant relationship. Paul says, don't deprive each other. Some couples use sex as a weapon against each other. They use it to be passive aggressive, to manipulate, to withhold. I mean, it does real damage in a relationship. And yet Paul says, this thing has to be mutual and consensual. You have no idea how radical of an idea this was for Paul to even say this. If you can believe this, during this time, it was perfectly okay for a man to demand sex of anybody as long as they were a lower class than him. He could just go up on anybody and just demand it. And now Paul is saying, no, that's not how this thing works. This needs to be a consensual thing. This so flipped the ancient world upside down because Christians started living this out that a Roman emperor just a few centuries later said this, no woman should be forced to have sex against her will. That's mind-blowing stuff. It totally changed the world. Ladies, especially for you, you need to understand, this is one of the most empowering scriptures for you, because I know this affects the women's generally. I know it doesn't, I know it's meant to, but ladies, you need to know, Paul is saying right here, you are not just some sex object for a man's pleasure. You are a precious daughter of Christ, and your body deserves honor and value and dignity, even in the marriage sexual relationship. And so this is God's hope for the marriage context, that there would be life-giving, sacrificial, devoted physical intimacy that strengthens and reinforces this covenant relationship that is satisfying and pleasurable and fun and all of those things. That is God's heart. Now, what I know is, even though that's God's heart, that's not always our experience. And we're thinking, okay, Brian, that sounds great. That is not my reality at all, though. We're not even close to having that even in our marriage right now. I have to just acknowledge that there are so many dynamics that make this so hard to experience even in a marriage relationship. Think about all the things that just throw the sexual dynamic sideways. Some of us in here, you have very real health complications that actually make this difficult. Some families, you got a new baby in the house. You're in a very tough season. Sometimes it's literally a cataclysmic event. Some people, childhood trauma comes out in this. Maybe there's an experience of fidelity, some crisis, other traumatic experience, an event from the past. I had multiple women approach me the last couple weeks when we started talking about this relationship reset thing. And they just got really honest and vulnerable. They said, Brian, I had an experience of sexual assault or abuse earlier in my life that has drastically impacted my ability to experience intimacy in our relationship. And it's really put a challenge in our marriage. 
I had multiple women approach me after the first service to say the very same thing. And I know it's not just the ladies. I know this is the thing that affects the men too. I had another woman give me a book to read in preparation for this that just talked about all of the challenges women in particular even face when it comes to this thing. And so I just have to take a moment and just acknowledge, I see that there are so many things that can work against this going properly in your marriage. And I just want to give some help to some of the couples in our church that are struggling. Paul says that there are actually legitimate times to abstain from sex in a marriage and may even be necessary. So he says sometimes you need to pull apart a little bit. He said for a time of prayer, where you may need to seek help, you need extra spiritual energy in your life to get through maybe a hard time. And so some of the couples in here, that may be something that you just need to lean into. Now, the problem with this is usually one person in the marriage decides they need to abstain for a while and hasn't told the other one. And then everybody's frustrated because it's like, why are you playing so much defense on me? What's going on? And the other person's like, I need more Jesus in our relationship or something like that. And we're not doing it right now. It's like so frustrating. Paul says it needs to be consensual. Maybe you need to sit down as a couple and say, I am struggling and I need to work through this issue before we can really figure this thing out. I'm just asking you to be sensitive to this. That is a way to serve and love each other. But Paul says, you need to come together again. This should be a radical exception to the rule. And every marriage should have the intention of coming back together and experiencing this intimacy. Because the risk is that you fall into a pattern and you end up in what is called, in our culture today, a sexless marriage. Now, this is where some couples get to a point where they're having sex so infrequently or not at all that it's actually damaging the relationship. When we were talking about this as a teaching team, Pastor John was like, well, doesn't every man think he's in a sexless marriage? <laughs> I don't know. You can talk to him about that. You can pray with him after the service, okay? So we can just talk about that. I threw that on him, though. I didn't want that to be my joke. So I'm not talking about the people here where, again, you're in a legitimate season that you need to figure out as a couple. I'm talking about the couples in our church where there is no reason with the age, stage, season of life you're in for you not to be intimate together. And if this is something you're experiencing in your marriage right now, you have to know this is almost always a sign that there is something not functioning properly in the relationship. Because I know some of the spouses in here, you're like, Brian, you're talking about sex being a way to exclusively, permanently, completely devote myself to my spouse. I cannot do that right now. Like, we are not having oneness in our relationship. That covenant you're talking about, that's just not what we have. It's been broken. It's been fractured. It's not working the way it was supposed to work. And let me just say, if you are at that point, it is so tempting for a couple to start thinking, well, I guess this is just our new reality. Like, we're just not going to be intimate. Like, we're just going to do porn. We're going to ignore each other. We're going to have other ways to satisfy our needs. And I want to challenge you that if you are at that place, you need to lean in and do some hard work. And you need to start by asking the question, what got us here? Why are we not even connected physically or emotionally in any way right now? Why is this covenant not functioning the way God intended? I've talked to so many couples over the last couple weeks, and I'm always honored that people allow me to speak into their relationships. Sometimes it's just the slow drift of decades. And couples can't even pin it to one particular event at all. It's just a slow drift. 
for some couples, there is a bitterness that just takes root. And just over years, it starts to fester. Some couples, they can pin it to a singular event and they're just having trouble moving past it and they're just stuck. What is it for your relationship? What has stalled out the sexual intimacy? Paul says you have to come together again. You need to fight for this intimacy in your relationship because he says Satan is going to come after you. You have a spiritual enemy who is trying to destroy your marriage. And he will stop at nothing to make that happen. He came after Adam and Eve. He's coming after you. And Paul says this is a target for Satan to get in between you and wedge himself between your sexual intimacy and tear apart the relationship. And isn't that interesting that Paul describes sex essentially as like spiritual protection in your marriage. It's actually a strengthening force. It's like spiritual warfare against the enemy to protect your spouse and the covenant you're in. And that's why this is so important. So if you right now are stuck in a sexless marriage, I want to give you some hope today. This can be fixed. God can help you in this area and it is worth the fight. And so if you're in that place right now, maybe you're sensing this in your heart, you're feeling a little bit of conviction, I would challenge you to start taking some steps. I would challenge you to even approach your spouse. And just say, honey, I heard some things in a message. I'm feeling convicted about it. And you just humble yourself. You say, I want our marriage to work. I want us to thrive. And I know I'm not serving you well in this area. We're struggling. I know there's a lot of layers to this. I want to start unpeeling this onion and figuring this out together. You need to start having some of those conversations. But I know that's not going to be enough for many people. You may need to involve a third party. You may need to get some real help to help somebody just untangle the knots in the relationship. And we need to remove the stigma from getting counseling or help or having a third party or talking to a pastor. There is no shame. There is no guilt. Your marriage is worth fighting for in this thing. And we are so passionate about this that actually we're building this resource page right now. But I told Tempe, our communications director, I said, just put one thing on there right now because I want to give an easy next step for people. If you go to nhills.org resources, you will land right on a page with recommended professional counseling services that we have all personally of ourselves that we know they know Northern Hills. They're great Christian people. And this may be the next step you just need to take just to get a little bit of help. Get somebody to speak into. It'll be worth the time and money. Trust me. And all these people can help you in this area. I'm telling you guys, in just a couple weeks, we're doing this marriage night. Some of the couples in here, you just need to put a stake in the ground. And this is a milestone. Yeah, celebrate. This is exciting. So Maybe you just need to look at your spouse and say, I want to do this. I want to invest in our relationship. I want to just take a step. And this isn't just for anybody who's struggling. This is for all married couples. Maybe you're engaged. Maybe you're in a serious relationship. Like, make the time for this. Make it a priority. Communicate to your spouse that this is important to you. And then right out of this thing happening on the marriage night, we're going to be launching what we're just calling sprint groups for four weeks. We're going to have groups all across the area. And many of these are going to be for married couples. Most of them will be. Now we'll have things for singles too. But you need to know this is a chance to connect to other couples. I'm not telling you need to spill all your beans to them. You just hang out for four weeks, meet some friends. You'll see what it does in your own marriage to challenge and inspire and encourage you to move in the direction of Jesus with what he has for you. How we live in our bodies matters, everybody. God made your body. He designed it to function a certain way. It has eternal implications. Every single one of us, we have an opportunity to honor God with our bodies and experience the blessings he has for them. So for all of us, it's time to reset, everybody. 
We need to reset our minds and our hearts in this area. And we need to just invite Jesus in to do a new work. And I'm telling you, God has a good purpose in this. He has your best in mind. He wants you to have the most fulfillment. He wants your marriage to thrive. He wants you to be satisfied in your singleness. So I'm challenging all of us. Let's step forward. Let's step into God's good design. Let's see what he has for us. And I'm telling you, it is going to bring him the most glory. And it's going to bring you the most good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together right now. Lord, we are just so thankful that you have good purposes even for this area of our lives. And I want to pray right now, specifically for those couples in our church that are struggling. Maybe they have a lot of dynamics going on that are affecting this area. I pray you would give them the conviction to start doing the hard work, to start really working on their relationship, to start praying together, to start seeking help. God, I pray for a healing work in the couples in our church. Soften all of our hearts, God. I just really pray that there'd be forgiveness and that some couples can really see the freedom and joy that can come with this covenant commitment, even when it comes to their own intimacy. I pray for all of us, Lord. We need a reset in this. Our culture is so sexualized. There are so many temptations. There are so many desires. There's so many challenges to navigate. I pray you would help all of us have this vision of your good design, of the wonderful gift of sex, and that we would honor it with what it's supposed to be, something to be satisfied in a marriage covenant, Lord. So help all of us, God, renew and reset our desires, our temptations. I pray for freedom from those who are mastered by sexual addiction right now. Lord, I pray for people to be able to move forward from regrets from the past. Lord, I pray for anybody in our church that has experienced abuse or assault in this. I pray that they would experience your wonderful cleansing, your healing, and that they would have an incredible testimony of the grace of God and Jesus in their lives. And Lord, we are so thankful, Jesus, because you gave your body for us. And now our bodies can be renewed. They're made holy that they're precious to you. And now I pray all of us, Lord, to be able to step forward by honoring you in our marriages, our lives, and our very bodies. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to learn more about Northern Hills, you can go to nhills.org. You can also follow us online on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram for more updates and events. We look forward to seeing you next week.